This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new neighborhood could sprout up along the South Platte River in Denver near Elitch Gardens Amusement Park. Picture skyscrapers and thousands of new people moving in. Elitches could even end up moving. It's part of a trend across Colorado and the country to build upwards in the city core and not outward into the suburbs. Andrew Kenny is a reporter for Denverite, the online news site, and he is following this story. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Thanks for having me. Give us an idea of what this new neighborhood could look like. I mean, it will initially be built around Elitch's on land that's, you know, parking lots and some open space these days. That's right. It'll start on the parking lots near Elitch's. But if you can imagine the year is 2040 and you're out for a stroll along the South Platte River in this section west of downtown, you might see kayakers and people swimming in the river. Not too many people swim in the South Platte right now. And along the banks of the river, you could see plazas and new parks. And next to those, you could see skyscrapers that rise to 40, 50, and even 60 stories tall. Groups of school children coming out from new schools, people emerging with groceries and baguettes from new grocery stores, a whole new neighborhood, a new section of downtown at the current site of Village Gardens. Yeah, it's always felt, I don't want to, I mean, quite describe it as a dead zone because there's obviously the amusement park and uh, you've got some gardens nearby, but it has always felt like this huge chunk of the city that was kind of unactivated. I think that's a planning term. That's right. Uh, is there a name for this whole thing? They like to call it the donut hole. The donut hole is, of the city. Uh, obviously, in downtown Denver, we've seen an absolute boom in the last decade or so or more of high-density, tall buildings going up everywhere. And in the middle of it, you have Elish Gardens and surrounding properties, which don't have a whole lot going on. The Pepsi Center is nearby, but right. you essentially have this amusement park that is closed for months at a time. You have parking, and on the other side of the South Platte, there's also a lot of kind of undeveloped space. When you had us picturing the future, I think you used the date 2040. Mm. Is that the current time horizon for all of this development? That is when, if the development is not finished by then, it will be in full swing, cranes everywhere. But it could start as soon as next year. Okay. And Denver City Council has approved a new plan that not only impacts the area around and including Elitch's, but also extending, as you say, towards the Pepsi Center. How does it fit into Denver's overall growth? I mean, does it remind you of anything that's come before it? Stapleton? Or is it unique? It is representative, I think, of a lot of the trends in Denver's development right now. It does resemble Stapleton in that it is a master-planned community. Okay, And what that means is that sometime in the 80s and the 90s, developers realized that instead of simply building blocks and blocks of homes, that they could make more money and make a kind of a more cohesive community if they planned out the whole thing, the roads, the sidewalks, the shopping centers. The retail, the supermarkets, all of that. That's right, the whole package. And that started in many ways in suburban areas like Stapleton. But over the last couple of decades, obviously, Denver has started to fill up. There is not a lot of space to go out and build another Stapleton or another Lowry. Mm. And that's driving folks with a lot of money, developers, into the center of the city where they are looking for opportunities to do that. I'm glad you mentioned money because the natural next question is how affordable some of this housing might be. This is a big problem for Metro Denver. 
That's a good question. We don't know the exact answer yet. This is still in its preliminary phases. What we know is that the Denver City Council has authorized in broad strokes their vision of this area. They say they want high-density development. They're okay with the general idea of this this new downtown district. And high-density is just code for lots of people living in close quarters. Basically. That's right. Okay. That's exactly right. High-rise buildings. Not sprawl. Sort of the opposite of sprawl. Exactly. And the developer has laid out the developer, his name is Reese Duggan. He's laid out his general vision with the renderings and a movie of what it could look like, kind of this idyllic vision. We'll post that, by the way, later today to CPR.org. But he has not gotten into the nitty gritty of saying even how many units there will be, how many apartments there will be, period. So there is no clear promise yet of just how much affordable housing there will be. But Mr. Duggan has said that he wants to make this inclusive neighborhood, that it will be for a range of incomes and that there will be housing units that are appropriate for families, which is really hard to find, two Hmm. and three and four bedrooms potentially. Is there any uh, city ordinance that is saying there has to be at least some affordable housing in this area? No, not yet. Developers by default have to pay a fee that goes toward affordable housing. That's right. I would suspect that the Denver City Council will push for a specific requirement that you build affordable housing on the site here. They've been doing that at other sites lately. They don't want to see a lot of new downtown districts built without affordable housing specifically in there. They felt like that was kind of a failing at Union Station. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Morner, and we're talking about a fairly large swath of Denver that is, for the most part, undeveloped, but that's about to change. It's the area around Elitch's and the Pepsi Center. Andrew Kenny, a reporter for Denverite, has been following this story. And uh, in addition to concerns about affordability, I have to think that people are concerned about traffic Mm -hmm. and congestion. And if every one of the new apartments or condos comes with two cars, what is that going to do to the quality of life? Uh, Has that been a part of the discussions, Andrew? This is a really interesting site, Ryan, because it is kind of on an island. It's surrounded by parking and the Auraria campus to the south. And on the other side, it's got the South Platte River and the highway. So it doesn't have a ton of neighborhood associations and residents who are right up on top of it. So what we've heard so far is mostly from folks across the river. And to them, sure, you want to build a downtown district a half a mile away from me that I can walk to that will boost my property values. They're all about it. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. But they, they feel that you can't build a whole downtown district without some side effects. And so, of course, it could spill over. You could see more density, more residents spilling outside of the boundaries of this specific project. This could key off more development on the other side of the river. And, of course, it'll put more people on the roads. However, some interesting points here. It really aligns with Denver's vision for what the future of development could and should look like. It's on a light rail line, and the developer, Reese Duggan, has said that he wants to institute something called parking maximums. And what that means is instead of having a minimum number of parking spots, that instead you would have a limit on it. So he would try, theoretically, to discourage his new residents from having cars. And maybe making it more expensive to have one uh, by creating something of a tight market for parking. That's right. But this is... Uh, what developers call transit-oriented development. So developing uh, offices and and housing and all of that near a transit line. What happens to Elitch's? What happens to that amusement park in the heart of Denver? So 
in the beginning, Elitches gets to stay. For okay, that who sounds knows like, how long? Okay. <laughs> for the foreseeable future is how the developers have described it. And so they would start by building a, a parking deck and then replacing the surface parking lots with the first buildings in this new district. Right. Much of that parking is for Elitches now. That's right. And I've heard it described as a parking crater, just dozens of acres of, of pavement. But in the long term, their their visions and their maps go right across Elitch Gardens and they have said that they want to move Elitches to another site. The big question is where? Elitches is is sixty acres. There's a reason that they want to develop it, and that reason is that sixty acres in the middle of downtown Denver is a very, very valuable asset. I don't see them recreating that same thing within the city itself. Could they be heading out to the suburbs, possibly? They've also implied, I was just chatting with one of their spokespeople, and and he said they were exploring uh, the latest trends in, in amusement parks, and that includes virtual reality, which means maybe you could fit a roller coaster on a, a smaller footprint ha, if it okay. doesn't have to go anywhere. Uh, thanks for uh, talking about this project with us. And thanks for having me. And perhaps where it's headed, Andrew Kenny, reporter for Denverite, and we'll link to his reporting as well as a video of what this proposed new Denver neighborhood might look like later today at CPR.org. The North Fork Valley of Colorado is known for its picturesque rolling hills. Could it soon be known for oil and gas drilling as well? The Bureau of Land Management is proposing that 95 percent, almost 8,000 acres of the North Fork Valley, be available to drillers under a new resource management plan. The small town of Paonia is nestled in those hills. Zach Coleman, White House reporter for E&E News, took a deeper look at what could be in store for a small town that is divided over oil and gas development in its backyard. And Zach, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What makes the North Fork Valley more interesting or lucrative for oil and gas development than, say, other land? Yeah, well, the North Fork Valley sits on the second largest shale gas reserve in the country. So there is a proven resource underneath all that land. What makes it complicated is it's also an area that's turned away from energy development and towards an agricultural community, an you know, agritourism community, brings in people from Aspen and Carbondale in the summer. So it's one of these places that they're trying to get off of this boom-and-bust, resource-driven economy and go to something more sustainable. Just a quote from your article uh, that was published as well in High Country News. Once a coal town, Paonia has transformed itself, now known for wineries, boutiques, galleries, and organic farms. Uh, So in some respects, the idea of coming back to fossil fuels in the form of oil and gas would be a return to Paonia's history? In a way, yeah. And, and what what's different, though, is that this is a, a oil and gas push by the Trump administration. What Paonia was built on was coal. So oil and gas is, is you know, going to be around for a while. Uh, coal is definitely on the downswing. And that's kind of a, a threat to what a lot of the people in Paonia want. Uh, they want to get away from the the scarring of their land and they're worried about impacts to their water that feeds the crops that they sell and even the perception of an impact to the crops that they sell because 
who wants to go to an area that is known for organic crops if they know that there's a ton of oil and gas development right on the edge? And that's a concern that a lot of people have there. Is climate change part of this as well? Uh, the conversation going on in this valley? I think it's less about climate change and more about direct water impacts. But I think that there's certainly an element there. What's happening right now under the Trump administration is they're pushing so much out there in terms of oil and gas leases. And an oil and gas lease is basically, uh, you know, you're putting out federal land that taxpayers own forbidding by oil and gas companies that they can then control for 10 years. So the Trump administration is doing a lot of this without even considering the impacts of climate change. They actually revoked a policy that requires the Interior Department to consider the impact of climate change from all their actions. And and that's something that's concerning to them. So, you know, you have a public resource that is being farmed off to private companies. And there are people in this valley who say, well, what about us? A recent survey, however, of what Coloradans find important in their communities showed that people, especially on the Western Slope, believe oil and gas is crucial to their local economy. Did you hear that view in the North Fork Valley? Certainly you hear that view. And Paonia is definitely a little bit different than other places like Hotchkiss, which is just on the doorstep. Paonia is a, a more of a kind of hippie town in a way. And Hotchkiss has more of a, you know, blue collar kind of feel to it. Um, And I think that there's a recognition that oil and gas and coal has been an economic driver for the Western Slope and for Western Colorado. There's a respect for that. And I think there's a lot of people in even Paonia who say, okay, we know it's unreasonable to get rid of all energy development. However, we just want to put it in places where there are fewer disruptions to the things that we are starting to emphasize, like farming and agritourism. There's even solar developers. So it's it's just about where do you do this, not let's not do it at all. As you report, Zach Coleman, it, it may be that the administration is actually pushing harder for oil and gas development in this part of Colorado than even the industry is interested in. Will you will you expound on that? Yeah, you know, there's there's a thing that um, the industry has said that they want more oil and gas leases to be offered to them. They want to bid on more land, but the the numbers don't show that, and that's part of the reason is a lot of in this country the federal land that the Trump administration can offer to oil and gas companies doesn't lie on top of the proven shale oil and gas reserves that have driven the hydraulic fracturing boom. There's just a geology problem. There, You can put all the land out there that you want. That's not going to change the fact that there's not oil and gas underneath a lot of these lands. Now, what makes North Fork Valley different yeah. is that there is a lot of oil and gas under that land. So that is why there are a lot of people who are particularly uh, motivated and activated in that area on this issue. The the real difficult thing, though, is this is a federal lands are owned by all taxpayers. So when the federal government offers that land, uh, the the revenues that are generated by oil and gas companies developing it and bidding on it go back to all taxpayers and then also the state. Now, that means that people far from Paonia in the North Fork Valley can benefit economically. So huh. the impacts on the local community are much more strongly felt, but the benefits are much more widely dispersed. So there's an inherent mismatch in priorities. Is it incredibly lucrative for the taxpayer, though, 
it's not um, in certain aspects. Um, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of nonpartisan studies from the Congressional Budget Office and the Government Accountability Office, that these kind of acronym salads that we deal with a lot in D.C. <laughs> but, um, you know, that they, they show the rates that companies pay for access to our federal lands are far lower than they could be or should be. In fact, it acts as a sort of subsidy for energy development. And then you're also not considering the impacts of climate change, which have their own costs that aren't borne necessarily today, but will be in the future. The final say uh, belongs to this current administration and the BLM, I gather. Are they seeking public input? Is this a fait accompli? Uh, well, there's, it's basically a fait accompli. I mean, that, and that's not necessarily just because of the Trump administration. The Bureau of Land Management, which is run by the Interior Department, has always been a, a welter of energy development. This is something that was true under Barack Obama. It was true under Bill Clinton, George Bush. But the Trump administration has put it into overdrive. There was a public comment period, but it was pretty brief, and it was also initiated just before the 4th of July holiday. So if you have to read between the lines on that, it's that the Trump administration maybe wasn't being forthcoming in how open they wanted this comment period to be. So as far as recourse goes, there there have been instances in which communities on the doorstep of planned oil and gas leasing have protested and drummed up a lot of public opinion against drilling, and the Interior Department has deferred or shelved those lease sales. And I think that that's probably the stage that drilling opponents in North Fork Valley are at right now. Well, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Zach Coleman, White House reporter with E&E News, talking to us about the potential for major oil and gas development in Colorado's North Fork Valley. A dispute over a farting unicorn has been resolved. Artist Tom Edwards of Evergreen was surprised to learn that his colorful drawing of a unicorn farting to power an electric car appeared on screens in Tesla vehicles. Tesla co-founder Elon Musk apparently owns one of Edwards' mugs, which has this image on it. The thing is, that company never paid Edwards to use it. Until now. After attorneys got involved and after Edwards spoke out in the media, including to us, he's now been compensated for the use of his artwork. The amount is not disclosed, but uh, it's quite reasonable, and I'm really happy with it. Edwards is also happy about an opportunity that came from all this publicity. He got an invitation from an arts nonprofit that works with underserved children. Basically, uh, I will be working with a group of kids and police officers to design a unicorn mural in Los Angeles. Evergreen artist Tom Edwards. Maybe you've noticed a bright red light in the evening sky lately. It's not a star, it's Mars. This weekend, the red planet will be closer, bigger, and brighter than it's been in 15 years. Plenty of other planets are visible, too. And here to tell us what to look for in the summer sky is astronomer Doug Duncan of CU Boulder. He joins us regularly to talk about space science. Welcome back, Doug. Hello, Ryan. Good to be back. How easy is it to spot Mars right now? It's pretty easy. Mars is a bright orange star. And if you're looking at the right time of night, you're going to see it. Uh, It rises a little late, um, maybe by about 11 p.m. It'll be up in the southeast 
east, rising. Um, you know, the best way to point stuff out in the sky is the way astronomers do, and that is by degrees. We hold our fist out at arm's length, oh. and your fist covers about 10 degrees. You know, 90 degrees is straight up. That's the zenith. 45 degrees is halfway up in the sky. So your 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 fist is a good measure of 10 degrees and your thumb out at arm's length is about a degree and we'll huh. use you will use that, okay? Mars will be maybe 15 degrees up at 11 p.m. out in the southeast. So a fist and a half, an orange thing, watch it rise around midnight, 1 a.m. It's very prominent. That's Mars. From July 27th to the 31st, Mars will be closer to Earth than any time since uh, just about 2003, I think. What, what brings us so close? Help us understand that. Well, the real big change in the brightness of Mars is due to the fact that it's the next planet out from the sun. So most people know the Earth is the third planet from the sun. Mars is the fourth. Because we're closer to the sun, we orbit faster. So what that means is think of a race, and you're on the inside lane, and you're going faster. You're going to lap whoever's in the next outside lane, right? And we lap Mars every two years, roughly. And so every two years, we get pretty close to Mars. And then the rest of the time, it's quite a bit further away and not so prominent. I mean, I hear rumors about Mars being really big in the sky. Yeah. Compare it to, like, the moon for me, you know? (laughs) Well, I I mean, astronomers have to laugh because two things happen every two years. One, the Earth gets close to Mars, and it looks like a bright orange star. And secondly, the Internet rumors start that say it's going to look as big as the moon, okay? (laughs) I can safely disavow any chance that Mars is going to look like the moon. It'll just look like a bright star. It is the monsoon period in much of Colorado. We're getting these afternoon, you know, thunderstorms. Uh, What have you noticed? Has the cloud cover gotten in the way or what? Um, uh, on on the Earth or on Mars? Because we've got, well, some, we got right. some weather going on Mars, There's, too. I think there are <laughs> dust storms on Mars right now. Yeah. So any it, any number of things might yeah, impede yeah. this view. Um, I actually like when it rains because it makes the sky nice and clear. Oh. You know, if we can break with tradition, an amazing thing happened to me back when I was in high school and college. I worked at the Griffith Planetarium, the La La Land uh, planetarium. Yes, in Los Angeles. Yes. And it was so clear after a week of rain that Venus came into the evening sky like it is now. We'll talk about this in a minute. And it was so clear in LA, everyone thought it was a UFO. We got a <laughs> thousand UFO calls. And I would pick up the phone and I would go, good evening. This is the Griffith Observatory. The bright object you see over the Pacific is not a UFO. It is merely the planet Venus made unusually bright by the clear atmospheric conditions. This is not a recording. <laughs> and people would cough. And uh, then they'd usually ask me, what was that? in the sky, and I would say, like a human, I would say, it's Venus, and they would say, thank you. So the rain is having an effect of sort of flushing things out and maybe yeah. making things clearer, and and yet there is this massive dust storm on Mars right now, severe enough that the rover Opportunity, which is on the surface there, went into sleep mode. Right. And now, a lot of our, our listeners probably saw the movie uh, uh, The Martian. I did. And it's a great movie. And technically quite accurate about everything except for the dust storm. 
Mars only has 1% the atmosphere of the Earth. So when it gets dusty, on the one hand, you can't see all across Mars. It's like L.A. with the smog, not with the clear. But it's not enough to uh, do something like in, in the movie The Martian. But if you take out a telescope and you try and look at Mars and see the polar caps and see the dark areas, um, it's dusty enough that you can't see too much. Okay, so it affects our view of Mars from here. Were we on Mars, it wouldn't be quite as dramatic. Not as dramatic as the movie. They took a little um, artistic license to make it exciting. As they might often do in Hollywood. Indeed. But if you're hoping with a telescope to see some of Mars's finer features, you may be out of luck. You probably are, right now anyway. You mentioned Venus. Yes, and Venus is out there in the sky and even brighter than Mars, and pure white and in the setting sun. So sometimes the Venus isn't, we call it a morning star or an evening star. Of course, it's a planet, not a star, but it's out there in the west. It is not a UFO, folks. It's just over the mountains at sunset. So depending on how close you are to the mountains, it may be obscured. So the time to look is maybe right at sunset, maybe a few minutes after, 830 Remind us the size of Venus compared to, say, the size of Mars. Venus is a twin of the Earth. It's just about the same size as us and okay. and much bigger than Mars. Where can we find Jupiter and Saturn these days? Well, this is uh, easy because Jupiter is the next brightest thing, and it's roughly in the south part of the sky, about three-fifths up. Um, From the horizon? Y- yes. Okay. Look, So face south. And the bright object to the right, that would be Jupiter, two or three fists up, maybe 9.30, 10 in the evening. And Saturn is also in the south, and it's real easy to find right now because it's right next to the moon. So it's two degrees below the moon. Put your thumb out at arm's length and go a couple of thumbs down from the moon, and that bright thing is Saturn. Now, we will post this interview later today at CPR.org if this is flying past you, all of these fist distances. Jupiter is making a splash this month as well because scientists have spotted 12 new moons. I think that adds up to 79 moons I think you're right, for but Jupiter. it's impossible even for uh, most astronomers to keep up. And, you know, the 12 new moons are small. They're a few miles across. If you could see them, and they're too far away to see from the Earth with a telescope, um, they'd look like potatoes. Huh. They're not round. You know, they're just kind of irregular shape. And they're just a few miles across. They're sort of... Um, the size of like a small city or a, right. a large development or something. <laughs> That's right. About the size of Elitch's, you know. <laughs> and yet we can call those moons as opposed to asteroids or something. You know, if it orbits a planet, it's a moon. Ah. And one of the 12, very likely, I'm glad, glad you brought that up, was an asteroid until it was captured. And the reason we know that is it's driving the wrong way. It's going opposite to what most of the moons do. You mean captured by the effect of the planet. Right. The gravity of Jupiter captured something, and it's going the wrong way. (laughs) You see? It it is counter-cyclical to all the other moons. Right, right. You see, Jupiter formed the same way the solar system did. A big cloud was spinning. It collapsed. 
it broke into different pieces, but they were all spinning the same way. So I would bet money that this new moon is a captured asteroid. Fascinating. We're speaking with Doug Duncan. He teaches astronomy at CU Boulder, joins us regularly to talk about space science and Colorado's deep connection to that realm. Uh, stargazers have even more to look forward to with the Perseid meteor shower. Oh, we do. Every we do. August. Uh, um, you say the show will be especially good this year. It is. The Perseids are the most dependable meteor shower. They're my favorite. They produce the most meteors. They're in the nice warm summer. Uh, and every year I check the calendar. The, the Perseids always come August 11, 12, 13. Okay. And I always check the calendar to see what the moon will be like. Because if the moon is full, it's like someone left on all the lights. And it's hard to make out the shower. Yeah, you miss most of the good stuff. But this year, it's new moon, very close to new moon. So I'm going to be up in Allen's Park on the 13th, and we're going to be looking uh, for the meteors. You know, the reason it's dependable is kind of interesting. When you think of the orbit of the Earth or, or, or um, a comet, yeah. let's say, you think of like the Earth is here in the orbit and it goes around, but the rest of the orbit like is empty. But in the case of comets, um, there's debris all the way around the orbit. So think of that circle or that oval as being filled in. And every time the Earth comes through the area of space that intersects that orbit of that comet, um, we hit a bunch of little ice and, and, and rock particles and we get a meteor shower. And it's enveloping us in some regards. Yeah, we, we plow into it. First person who figured that out was Giovanni Schiaparelli, the f person who found the canals on Mars. Huh. About 1860, he figured out comets generate meteor showers. How big are the debris pieces that we tiny, are flying tiny. through? So the typical shooting star, as we call it, is the size of a grain of rice. If it was as big as a as a basketball, it would probably some of it make it all the way to the Earth. Now, does a lot of this get eaten up by our atmosphere? It does. Okay, in, so, in so fact, we affect the meteor shower as we pass through it. We do, and it's traveling so fast. That's where the energy comes from. You know, how can a grain of rice 50 miles up be bright enough for you to see? The answer is it's traveling faster than the space shuttle. So it just glows on reentry and burns up. Huh. Most of them burn up. Uh, particularly good time to see the Perseids? After midnight. Always meteor showers are better after midnight. Doug's explanation to this goes a long ways. It's the bugs on the windshield explanation. Everybody knows that you hit more bugs with the front windshield of a car than the back. Yes. Um, think about the Earth. We're spinning on our axis and we're orbiting the sun. And at midnight, you're on the part of the Earth away from the sun. As you go past midnight into the early morning, you rotate into the front direction of the Earth going around the sun. So after midnight, you're the front windshield. Before midnight, you're the rear windshield. So you'll see roughly twice as many meteors after midnight as before. So it pays to stay up. I have to say that the theme of all of these celestial bodies and seeing them is that uh, kids are going to have to be up past their bedtimes, Doug Duncan. Oh, yes, but it's a good thing, and, and they remember that. And, you know, they might be motivated like what happened to John Denver. He wrote a song with a line, I've seen it raining fire in the sky. And those were the Perseid meteors that inspired that line of the John Denver song. Fascinating. Thank you, as always, for your insight and uh, this time into the night sky in the summer. 
My pleasure, Ryan. Doug Duncan teaches astronomy at CU Boulder. And if you want to watch the Perseid meteor shower with him, he will indeed give a talk on the evening of August 13th at the Old Gallery in Allen's Park. Two ministers in the Denver area want to redefine what it means to fight racism. Talking about race can feel like an obstacle course. So this pair uses compassion, spirituality, and laughter as a roadmap. CPR's Anne-Maria Wad spent some time with these soul-to-soul sisters. The first thing you need to know about Reverend Don Riley Duvall and Reverend Tawana Davis is that they don't have a church. They don't need one. The work that Tawana and I are called to do we could not do in the confines of a congregation or even a denomination. We had to create our own thing um, and do it um, how we feel it, how we feel called. Riley Duvall says both of them put in their years as pastors in the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Then they retired from Shorter AME Community Church to found their nonprofit Soul to Soul Sisters three years ago. Davis says in order to do the work they do, fighting racism, they had to play by their own rules. We don't need someone to give us permission to do the work, but we are creators. We are co-creators. And if we can't co-create in doing that work, then do your thing. God bless you. Wish no ill on you. You rock and do what you believe is anti-racism work. And we're going to do this. And what is this? It's facilitating conversations, predominantly among white people, about racism, about how it works, all the different ways it can manifest itself, and most importantly, what a white person's role is in the task of dismantling racism. At first, they would give presentations to congregations, but not everyone wanted to hear what they had to say. Heard a lot of hurtful things, a lot of hurtful things, and... We just decided absolutely not. That's not healthy. That's not self-care. We're not going to open ourselves up to being treated like that. Nowadays, the pair let people come to them. And they have, to the tune of more than 800 people just last year. They run multiple programs now, including one that still involves congregations. Another, called Facing Racism, is a four-week intensive. There's lots of reading, from writings by Malcolm X to rap lyrics. At a session I attended, people discussed wanting to confront racist family members or asked for advice on how to navigate tough conversations with friends. No one was called out. No one was judged. We are encouraging critical feeling and critical thinking so you can think differently in this world. So we are, again, exemplifying and embodying what it is to experience difference and how to do this dance. The two also emphasize that the work of combating racism is ongoing. So there's a Facing Racism alumni group that meets monthly. Debbie Zucker is a facilitator with Facing Racism. We get kind of a big load of software as white people that gets downloaded, and now we're beginning. White people are increasingly interested in understanding what was handed to us. Zucker says Soul to Soul's approach works because it's compassionate and loving. No one is there to be singled out or called a racist. She says people come to the group to learn and grow. Zucker has seen it herself. I mean, one white woman just looked at Don and Tawana and said, oh, I just got it that you care about your children as much as I care about mine. 
and the room just fell deeply silent. It was so honest, and it was really brave of her. Riley Duval says it's moments like this that show the impact of Soul to Soul's work. Giving permission, getting permission um, to be in the midst of challenge um, is beautiful for folks, um, is an opportunity that most folks do not get, do not have, um, and people are hungry for and appreciate. I'm Anne-Marie Awad, CPR News. The sounds coyotes make are fascinating. First off, you can hear them from miles away. And biologists say coyotes sing a particular song once they've settled in an area. It's called the Group Yip Howl. And it's the focus of Wild Tracks today, our series about the sounds of the Mountain West. Folks that call us, they're sleeping at night and they have the window open. And here comes the group Yapal, and they've described it as one of the most terrifying things they've ever experienced. I'm Mary Ann Bunnell, and I'm a park ranger for Jefferson County Open Space. The texture of it is amazing. It's often described as 25 animals, but if you know, there's usually only two or three that are doing all the noises. And that's one of the main questions that people have, is I'm hearing this quite a bit. Does this mean the coyotes live here? Are they passing through? And when you hear that, you know you have resident coyotes. They're convinced that's their territory, and they're not only communicating that with each other, but to communicate to other coyotes that aren't in a family group that don't have a territory, you need not stop here. Keep going, because this is ours. Which is one of the reasons why when a, an ambulance goes by with a siren, sometimes after that you'll hear the coyotes chime in, and the thought is that that, that siren is thought of as another group starting a group yep howl, so they have to respond to it. And if you can see the coyotes doing it, if they're close to each other, there's face licking, there's tail wagging, it is all about social bonds and reuniting with each other, or at least reuniting vocally with each other. And it's one of my favorite sounds in nature. Amazing. Those sounds came from the National Park Service and ecologist Brian Mitchell. Wild Tracks is produced by Sam Brash. Okay, did you know that trees sing? I'm not kidding. This is a ponderosa pine near Florissant, Colorado. This sound was captured by biologist David George Haskell for his book, The Songs of Trees. And David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's a delight to be with you. So that was an ultrasound recording, which captures sound that the human ear can't. Uh, or at least can't perceive, uh, to your brain, what's causing that clicking in a ponderosa pine? So the little ultrasonic detector that we heard is is picking up little fizzles and, and cracks from inside the twig. It turns out that when a water is flowing through a twig, uh, the, the little water conduits are coming in tiny, tiny little threads, almost like silken threads. Then when the tree gets dry, okay. so in a, in a drought or late in the afternoon on a sunny day, those silken threads break. 
And we're, what we're hearing is the acceleration of the breakage of those little, uh, those little threads of water. So it's like putting your ear to a tree and hearing the mounting signals of distress. So that's the hidden sound of a ponderosa. Uh, but in your book, you highlight sound we can all hear without any special equipment, and that is when the wind blows. The ponderosa in particular is very noisy. What makes it so loud? The ponderosa pine, well, particularly the ponderosa in Colorado, harrows the wind with its stiff needles. If you watch a ponderosa in the wind, it's Twigs will bob up and down, but the needles don't shift. They're like the tines of an agricultural uh, harrow, Mm. tearing at the wind. And so the wind, even a slight gust of wind, creates a great roar of sound coming from the ponderosa. Now, it turns out that other pine trees, say a white pine in the east, or even the ponderosa pine in California, that has much longer, softer needles, doesn't make nearly such a screech. So the sound here is one way of listening to the ecology of the the particularity of of Colorado. We have very heavy snowfalls, of course, lots of ice, and the trees are adapted to that, or at least they were adapted to that until the climate started shifting and and so forth. So, Mm. So in these sounds, we're hearing the physiology of the tree, but we're also getting a glimpse into some of the challenges the trees are facing in this changing world. Uh, The naturalist John Muir called the sound of those needles in the wind the finest music. But uh, it's of such an intensity in Colorado's trees that uh, you don't necessarily find it to be terribly meditative, I understand. It isn't, or maybe the meditation leads us to a different place, and and it's a place of of alarm. And and for anyone out walking in in the Ponderosa woods, I think if you you open your ears, you'll hear this. A slight gust creates a great whoosh from the trees and a really strong wind. It sounds like the whole mountainside is, is wailing. Hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a sound that's very evocative of, of the Rocky Mountains. My guest is biologist David George Haskell. And in his book, The Songs of Trees, he has studied 12 trees around the world, two of them in Colorado. And I'll say that the book won the 2018 Burroughs Medal for Distinguished Natural History Writing. You live part-time in Boulder now, but you didn't while writing. When you looked worldwide for trees to study... Why did you choose two from Colorado? Yes, yeah, so the trees in the book are located in places that have very different ways that people and ecology are interconnected. And trees are the characters in the book that are telling this story. And it turns out that in Colorado, that there are the, the confluence of change and of people and of ecology just manifests in, in very uh, – fascinating ways. For example, one of the trees is in downtown Denver. Yeah, you said confluence. It's in Confluence Park. in Confluence Park. And for that particular tree, the cottonwood tree, the story is of urban change. Confluence Park, of course, in the 1970s and 80s was not a place people would go to swim and hang out and have a nice uh, family outing. It was was a a place with a lot more pollution and, and there wasn't a nice park there. And so through the action of nonprofits and, and the local government, Denver has transformed itself into a place that is leading the way for other cities around the world to show how to put bike paths where people are going to use them, how to put parks where people can experience nature and rivers and trees without having to drive up into the mountains. 
And so the tree that you profile, if you will, in Confluence Park in downtown Denver is a cottonwood. And we have a recording of the leaves when they are full of water slapping in the wind. Now, I think what I hear in addition to wind is traffic. What you're hearing is is uh, the weir. So it's water from the South Platte River coming rushing down the rapids there. Aha. Uh-huh. And speaking to how close this is to water, but also to I-25. Exactly. You know, which might be indistinguishable from the water sound mm-hmm. sometimes. Yes. And, you know, one of the design features of, of Confluence Park is that it's, it's sunk. It's, it's, you know, the place where you'd go and sit down and have a picnic is lower than street level, and and that acts as a way of of managing floods. But it also has an unintended acoustic consequence, is that you don't hear a lot of the traffic noise. The Mm. traffic noise goes above, and so it creates a little pool of calm, and and the soundscape is dominated by the sounds of swallows in the summer or ducks in the wintertime and then the, and rushing water. So you, you have here a tale of two trees, right? So there's this ponderosa near Florissant, Colorado, and then you've got this cottonwood that's smack in the middle of a city. And you tell the reader not to think of one as wild and the other as something else. You, you both see – you see these both, rather, as wild manifestations, Exactly. I think we've we've lived too long with the idea that anything that the human hand has touched has in somehow been defiled or is no longer natural or worthy of preservation. And I think we need to think instead of the human species as belonging here. So that a city, although a city, of course, has ecological problems and it has problems for people as well as areas of great beauty and joy for, for people in ecology – We should not think of the city as somehow removed and separate from the rest of the community of life. It's another way in which the community of life has organized itself. And so our problems are best solved, I think, by thinking of ourselves as within the community of life rather than as masters or somehow separate Mm -hmm. from it. Uh, Will many of the trees in this book outlive you, David? Indeed, many Uh of them will. Some, Some... you know, it's an interesting question because the the boundary between life and death for trees is, is not so clearly drawn. One of the trees in, in the book is a great big fallen ash tree in the, in the forests of Tennessee. And I came on this tree right after it fell. And it taught me that it, there's as much life in a fallen tree as the tree had when it was standing alive. Mm. So it's afterlife, in fact – is is vibrant and vital. I'm picturing and, mushrooms. I'm picturing perhaps animals that seek shelter in it. Yes, it's sort of large animals and also animals that love, love to walk along it. There are bobcats that sit on it to look around. But particularly within the tree, if you bend your ear to a fallen log, sometimes you can hear some of this ecosystem that lives within dead wood, mostly little insects and termites and so forth chewing away. There are as many species that live breed, have their whole life cycle on dead wood as in the living tree. So absolutely, these uh, trees, many of them, most of them will outlive me, but there are some that are already dead, but are, s- but are still, still somehow outliving you. Yes, and, and this <laughs> log, depending on how quick decomposition goes, may well still be around when I, when I depart this life. We have uh, just about a minute. How do you think trees are great connectors? Because that's what you call them, that these are stories from nature's great connectors. 
we're learning from biology now that the, 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 the notion of the individual is an illusion. In fact, all life is made from interconnection. And trees are so enormous, and they live rooted in one place, so they have to make connection work for them. So I chose them for this book because they are the master networkers of, of the world. And this sometimes meant sleeping in their midst. Absolutely. Sleeping, yeah. walking, talking. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. David George Haskell has written The Songs of Trees. He's a biology professor at the University of the South in Tennessee. Accordionist Al Gallegos is in his 90s. He still plays regular concerts at the nursing home where his brother is a patient. Gallegos will be inducted this week into the Chicano Music Hall of Fame. Born in the small town of Morley in southern Colorado, he first picked up an accordion when he was nine and taught himself to play. Teatro honors Al Gallegos and this year's other inductees on Thursday of this week. And before we go, just a quick welcome to Carl Bielek. He is our new executive producer at Colorado Matters. We're so pleased to have him, and we're so pleased to have you listening. I'm Ryan Warner, Colorado Public Radio.